All right. Welcome again. Thanks for being here. It's really good to see you guys. Really good that you guys could join us online. Uh, we are going to be in Luke chapter 13. If you want to turn to Luke chapter 13, that would be great. Luke chapter 13, we're going to look at verses 10 through the end of the chapter, verse 35. I want to read chapter, sorry, I want to read verse 10 uh, through verse 21, and then we'll pray and we'll get into it together. Now, as Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. And when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each one of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey uh, from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. And Father, we pray that you would use our time together to equip us, to help us, Lord, to walk as those in your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So, so what we're, we've been seeing increasingly in Luke's gospel is this conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. If you remember from back in chapter 9, uh, Jesus had, had basically said he had set his face toward Jerusalem. He was moving toward Jerusalem. This is the Father's plan for him, was to bring him to Jerusalem so that he would uh, there uh, meet, uh, do what needed to be done to save humanity. Now, now, one of the reasons there was so much conflict was this difference in expectation of what we call the last days. There, there was a, 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 a certain expectation from the religious leaders of their day of what the last days meant. So from a Jewish perspective, a first century Jewish perspective, they saw, uh, they, they saw when the Old Testament talked about their present age, that meant the time of the Old Testament writers. That they were in that time waiting for a time when Messiah would come, God's chosen king would come. And so they saw just kind of two sections. They saw a time of promise. That's all that's been recorded in the Old Testament. And then they saw a time of fulfillment that would begin when the Messiah came. And of course, because they saw this, uh, this Messiah coming and conquering, they saw, like according to Zechariah 14, 9, where the Messiah will rule over the entire world. They saw him coming in some sort of military might. They saw him taking, uh, uh, c coming in and, and bringing up his rule with great power. 
So when Jesus comes on the scene and he shows this great power, they're thinking, okay, maybe this is the Messiah. But the things that he's teaching and the people that he's ministering to, well, they didn't fit into their agenda, didn't fit into their expectation. And so there was, a, there was a problem. They started to resist him, thinking he couldn't possibly be the Messiah because he wasn't doing what they wanted him to do. When we come to the New Testament, we begin to see this phrase, last days, being used as well. Uh, and, and it means something different. They, they began to, there began to be this revelation through Jesus and eventually through the apostles of what the last days was. And, and in other words, they saw that the Old Testament time, when the Old Testament was written, that was a time of promise. But, but they also saw that the last day, and they also saw that last days would begin when the Messiah would come, when God's chosen king would come. But they saw that that, 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 that time is also about the age to come. And it would only be partially fulfilled when the Messiah would come, because the Messiah would come, be crucified, he would resurrect, ascend to heaven, and then he would come again. So in other words, the, in the Old Testament, or at least a lot of the first century Jews thought, in the Old Testament taught, the Messiah comes once. But Jesus came on the scene and made it really clear, he's going to come twice. Comes the first time as the suffering Messiah, comes the second time as a conquering Messiah. And so some of that confusion caused this conflict. Now, what's important for us to recognize is that with this conflict, with this opposition, the more opposed that people got to Jesus, the more committed Jesus was to seeing them saved. Uh, think about this. That, that when, when people oppose us, what do we do? I, I know what I do. When someone's really in opposition to me, when someone treats me bad or seems to, to, to not want anything to do with me, I say, whatever, fine, and I walk away. I'm dismissive. I'm, I, I pull back. This is what I do. This is the wrong thing to do, by the way. This is not how we're supposed to be. But this is what I do. But Jesus, when he gets oppressed, he, he's not afraid to call them out. He calls them hypocrites, right? But he still is moving towards them. He's still moving towards the plan to save him. And that's what we really want to see, is how committed Jesus is to his kingdom and bringing his kingdom to earth and bringing us into his kingdom. So going back to verse 10 again, what do we see? We see in verses 10 to 21, Jesus here, here's what, he, here's what his ministry was. His first, his first coming was about Jesus demonstrating the quality of God's kingdom. Now in verse 10 it says he's in the, in the uh, teaching in one of the synagogues. And according to Luke's gospel, this is the last time he's going to teach in the synagogue. So you can see that this is coming to a head. This conflict between him and the religious leaders. But, but in the synagogue, there's this woman who's had this uh, disabling spirit for 18 years. And the implication is she's been coming to synagogue for 18 years with this situation. There she is hunched over. You get an idea that maybe she might have two little canes that she's kind of pushing as she's hunched over. She's in pain. She's in discomfort. She's in a place that's just in agony. And I, I, I can't help to think that maybe these rulers of the synagogue, the religious leaders, would see her and they would feel grieved, but they'd also kind of feel like it was a reminder that there's nothing they can do. And so you ever been in that situation? You ever been, been to a place in the city center where there are so many people that are, are uh, homeless or so many people that are needy? You kind of just want to ignore everybody because it's overwhelming. The need's overwhelming. And I wonder if this is how they felt about her. But here she is. She's there. And when Jesus sees her, he does something. In fact, Luke makes it clear. It says he, he wants us to know it's been 18 years that she's been this way. And then in verse 13 it says, He lays his hands on her. Jesus lays his hands on this woman after he says, You're freed from your disability. And it says, Immediately she was made straight. 
18 years she's been suffering, and in a second, boom, Jesus makes her better. And, and, and Luke wants to show us that contrast, that when, the, when Jesus comes in, he does what needs to be done. But what happens, of course, is this response from the religious leaders in verse 14. It says that the ruler of the synagogue was indignant because basically Jesus healed on the Sabbath. So he, who should he be mad at? Who's doing the healing? Jesus is. Who does he, he send his frustration towards? The people. Because this is what often happens. What often happens is people don't want to have to deal with Jesus. They want to ignore Jesus because he has too much power. So they deal with those people that might be responding to Jesus. This is what they do. So as, as he has this conflict with, with them, he says to them, after they say, hey, after the ruler says, hey, don't come, uh, don't come here on the Sabbath to get healed. Come the other six days. What does Jesus say to this guy? Verse 15, Jesus answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey? He says in verse 16, Ought not this woman a daughter of Abraham? Now keep this in mind. She's a woman of faith. She believes in the covenant God. But she's been suffering for 18 years. He says, Ought not this woman whom Satan has bound for 18 years? Now, we find that a bit weird in our modern Western setting, but this is what the scripture teaches, is that uh, not always, but it can be that when someone has a sickness, it's demonic. He says, Shall not she be, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Now, you wouldn't necessarily pick it up in our English Bibles, but Jesus is doing a, a play on words. He's literally saying, you would untie your ox or donkey on the Sabbath day. Why not untie this woman from her burden? He's saying, you treat your animals better than you would treat this woman. Or you would allow this woman to be treated, we might say. And of course, as he says this, his adversaries are put to shame. They realize that they've been caught out, but the people are, are rejoicing that this is what God's done through him. Now, right after this, it says in verse 18, he said, therefore. So in response to this healing, he says this about God's kingdom. He gives two parables with the same meaning. He says, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It's like a, a grain of mustard seed that a man took, sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. So here he gives a description of a mustard seed, which is a very, very small seed. It gets planted in your herb garden. And what happens? Does it just kind of grow a foot or so and you clip off stuff? No, he says that in, in the garden it can grow exponentially till it's a 10 feet high, big enough that it's almost like a small tree and birds can live in it. Now the second uh, parable, he says, has the same meaning when he says this in verse 20. To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Leaven, of course, we know is yeast. It's what makes bread kind of fluffy and kind of puff up. This idea of three measures of flour, it's enough to feed a hundred people. And the point he's making with both of these parables is, is that the kingdom, listen, it starts very humbly, but it has these huge glorious ends. It, it grows to something that we would, we would just be on expectation. The reason this is important is because, remember, these Jews, they thought, the religious people of his day thought, the kingdom's going to come, it's going to come in power, it's going to come uh, in this great dramatic way, it's going to be big, it's going to be bold, and everyone's going to see it. But Jesus says, actually, it starts very, very small. 
Now, this, this, this is important not just in the idea of what God's plan is for saving humanity. This is important even for our understanding of our own personal growth. I had a really radical conversion experience. So what, what I grew up, I didn't grow up in the church. And so at 18, when I came to know Jesus personally, I mean, it was from black to white. It was just from, it was from uh, death to life. It was just a really radical, immediate change. I was partying on a Saturday night, uh, doing things that nobody really should do. And then at, on Sunday night, I'm at, at this church, I'm hearing the gospel and I'm going forward to receive Christ as my savior. And, and, and I'm so excited about it. I'm telling the guy who makes fries at the local hamburger joint that I've just become a Christian. And he's like, whatever, you know. I mean, there was just this radical change. And because of that, I thought, this is how it's always supposed to be. But what I realize now, 34 plus years later, is that actually the change happens slowly but surely. That, that, that God's kingdom, me learning to live under God's rule, is something that's happening slowly and surely. It's not a straight road. It's not always an easy road. I'm having to learn obedience often through the things that I suffered just like Jesus did. And the thing is, is that there's something about this that's important for us to recognize. That the quality of the kingdom, it may seem simple. We, we may be here this afternoon going, there's not very many of us at the afternoon service. How come more people want to be at the beach than, than want to be, <laughs> they want to be at service? But the truth is, God's still doing something. He's still building his kingdom. It may have a humble beginning, but it's going to have a glorious end. I think this is uh, something for us to, to, to hold on as well, because I think sometimes we, we, we get this impression, we, we tell ourselves, you know what, we just got to keep all the rules and regulations, we got to do all the right things, and then we'll recognize God's kingdom when it comes. But actually, you know, the religious people didn't recognize God's kingdom. They were blind to it because of their religion. They, they couldn't see that God's desire was to save or to heal the sick, to save the lost. And so when someone would, would do something they think doesn't fit into the religious paradigm, they're like, hey, don't come and be healed on this day. Come back another day to be healed. And yet when the kingdom of God is there with the King Jesus, they, they don't even want to recognize it. Now Jesus was doing something here. He was showing them the quality of the kingdom, whether they wanted to see it or not see it. Well, so then from this point then, we see that Jesus is going to continue on his road to Jerusalem. Verse 22, it says, When he went on his way towards villages, and uh, towards through towns and villages, teaching and journeying through Jerusalem, and someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Now, this is interesting because you get a sense that when he does this, you get a sense that when and Luke's putting these two things together, that when he rebukes the Pharisees or, or the leader of the synagogue in this case, once again, when he's challenging people for being so blind to the kingdom, being so hypocritical about their, their own worship of God, when he does this, that people are beginning to wonder, well, is it going to be few that they're saved? Now, there was, of course, a mindset that was, if you are of Israel, if you were born a Jew, you were automatically God's covenant people, especially if you're a male and circumcised the eighth day, you're automatically part of God's covenant people. It's a done deal. And yet Jesus is saying these things. He's challenging people to the point they're beginning to think, well, wait a second. Am I going to be saved? Or am I going to be delivered? It's just going to be a few of us delivered. And what's implied in the question is, who are the few? 
And so what does Jesus say? He said to them, listen, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able when once the master of the house has written and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Very sobering words. Here's what Jesus is doing. Jesus, besides wanting to demonstrate the quality of the kingdom, he's also wanting to warn against assumptions regarding the kingdom. Here what he's talking about is, here's, he's warning about, hey, don't assume that you'll always be able to enter. Don't assume that the door is always going to be open to you. This is something that's really important for us to think about. Um, I, I, maybe bring this to the 21st century, bring this to, to our sort of church experience, our, our kind of church life. I think we can have this mindset that says, you know what, uh, you know, I, I'm interested in the things of Jesus. I've been watching these videos since lockdown happened, and I, I, I'm kind of interested, but you know, I'll make the decision later on. Maybe we're going to get past this lockdown, and maybe I don't really need Jesus so much. I'll wait for another crisis to come, and then I'll decide that I'm going to follow Jesus. But the problem with this attitude is, is it's, it assumes it assumes that simply we're just kind of morally neutral people that are observing truth that happens to come through Jesus, and then we can just make a decision, yes, this, this is helpful, no, it's not helpful. But actually the Bible doesn't teach that. What the Bible teaches is that we are people bent towards rebellion. And because we're bent towards rebellion, we need the light of God's truth to open our eyes and say, listen, man, it's time for you to turn. And each time we see something of who God is, each time God opens our eyes a little bit to who he is through how, how maybe a, a believer that we know, how they live their life, or through a message that we hear, or whatever it is that God uses to kind of give us something more about himself, when we see that and we go, not yet, we're actually increasing our rebellion against God. Our hearts are actually getting harder. And when he says, it's not just that the door's going to be shut to people, but they're gonna get, you're going to get to a point where you, you realize, man, uh, the door was shut a long time ago, and I never entered in. It's a really serious warning that he's making. Don't think that you're always going to be able to enter in. There could be a time when it's just too late for us. He goes on to say in verse 26, then you will, he says what he's saying to these people, then you will, will begin to say, we ate and drink in, drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. Now, one of the great things about Jesus was he was willing to eat and drink with pretty much anybody, including the Pharisees, including the religious hypocrites. And he was willing to do that because he wanted them to know the truth about who he was as the Messiah. He wanted them to really understand the truth of who God was instead of the, the kind of twisted ideas that they had. And, and the problem is, is he's warning them, listen, just because we, we shared a meal or just because we were in the same proximity doesn't mean we had a real relationship. And so the warning is don't assume that proximity and relationship are the same thing. And again, bringing this to the 21st century, bringing this to our church experience. Don't assume just because you come to a church or you watch these videos or you go, yeah, this Jesus stuff is beginning to make sense to me, that that automatically means you have a relationship with God, that you actually know God for who he is, that you actually see Jesus for who he is. 
that you've actually been saved by Jesus. This is the warning. We sometimes make this mistake of thinking that if we just have a bit of interaction or, or we have a bit of connection, that's going to be enough. Like you've heard of the phrase guilt by association. We might think it's innocence by association. Well, I'm with nice people, then I must be seen as a nice person. I'm with faithful people, I must be seen by God as a faithful people. But God doesn't look at the group that we're in. He looks at our own hearts, doesn't he? So Jesus is giving this warning to his religious people. Don't think because you've been near me that you actually have a relationship with me. He goes on, verse 28. In that place, Jesus says, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you say Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and reclaim the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. Now, now here's what he's getting at with this. Again, remember that these Jews would have thought it's their Jewishness, the fact that they are part of ethnic Israel, that would make them right with God, that makes them automatically the covenant people of God. And what Jesus is saying is there's two kind of shocking things he's saying. He's saying, yes, God is a covenant God. He's made covenants with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He has sent his prophets to his covenant people. All those things are true. But he's warning these, listen, you're going to see them in the kingdom and you cast yourselves cast out. You think that because you recognize who God's prophets are, you recognize that God has given a covenant, you think that by itself is enough. That's the shocking thing. There's another thing, though, it's equally shocking. He says, instead, what's going to happen? He says, there's going to be people coming from east, west, west, and from north and south who recline at the table in the kingdom of God. In other words, who enjoy that time of fellowship with God in the kingdom. In other words, listen, from every corner of the world, not just a sliver of country that's Israel, every corner of the world, there's going to be believers who come. Now, the reason this is really important for us to see is that he's telling us again, he's warning, don't assume that earthly connections equal heavenly ones. I've seen this happen with a lot of people who've grown up in the church. They've grown up in the church. They feel like my parents are faithful. Therefore, I'm automatically faithful. Or my nan prays for me, therefore I'm, I'm going to be right with God. And again, they're putting their trust in this sort of earthly connection instead of a heavenly one, instead of connecting uh, with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, instead of coming to Jesus for faith, receiving Jesus as their Savior. John writes this in John chapter 1. He says, Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In other words, listen, when he says that, that, that they needed to be born of God, this is what the Bible's saying about us. We need to be born of God. That we need to receive Jesus as our Savior. Not just make an intellectual sense. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I agree with that tradition or that idea. But that we have to say, Jesus, would you save me? And it's important that we recognize what this is and what this isn't. He, he says in John's gospel here, and this connects to the warnings that Jesus has given us. He says in John's gospel here that, this, 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 that his own people didn't receive him. The, Israel, the Jews did not receive Jesus. By and large, they didn't believe that he was their Messiah. 
But to those who did receive him, who did believe in his name, that is, they believed in his character, that he was who he said he was, he had the authority he said he had, he was showing the quality of the kingdom of God that they knew they needed to trust. He says to them he gave the right to become children of God. In other words, it wasn't their ethnic connections, it wasn't their proximity, it was Jesus. Jesus who gave them the right to know him. He says these were, were born not of blood, that's not just a human birth, nor of the will of flesh. In other words, it wasn't just, I, uh, I'm going to uh, work hard to make this happen, I'm going to prove that I deserve to be a part of God's kingdom, nor of the will of man. Not just a simple, well, I choose to believe this, therefore it's right. But they're born of God. In other words, God does a work to show them they need Jesus, and they respond to Jesus in faith, and they're born again. That's what Jesus called it in John chapter 3. Now this is, this is really important to think about because Jesus is being very clear about, all, all through all the Gospels, Jesus is very clear about how he saves people, how he makes people right with God. There's no kind of faffing about. There's no sort of, here's one of many ways. Jesus makes it really clear that he is the, the way. He's the dividing line in the sand. Now, what's interesting about this in, this in this section is, of course, as we're seeing all throughout Luke's, this part of Luke's gospel, is this increasing resistance, this opposition to him being the way. They don't like him saying he's the Messiah, he's the way of salvation. They'd rather believe that they're good enough by their own works to be right with this covenant God. And they push against this. But the more they push against it, the more Jesus is committed to make sure they know who he is to make sure that they can possibly be saved. Look at verse 31. It says, At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to Jesus, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Now, if you remember who Herod is, Herod was uh, the sort of king of one of the areas there uh, in, in Israel, in Palestine. And he was, uh, he, had, he was of Jewish descent, but he worked for the Romans. He was a very corrupt man. He was a man who, because he, his, a lot of his dealings, were, his relationships were corrupt and were evil, John the Baptist called him out. And of course, when John the Baptist called him out, he had John the Baptist arrested and eventually had John the Baptist beheaded. This is this Herod, okay? And so when, when the, the Pharisees kind of warn Jesus when they say, hey, look out, Herod wants to kill you. It's kind of a veiled threat. We don't know for sure if actually at this point Herod wanted to kill Jesus. It could be them saying, hey, you're kind of doing what John the Baptist did and they, Herod killed him, so you better watch it because you're going to die too. It was kind of a veiled threat. Maybe they're saying, uh, you know, we think we're ready to turn you over to Herod if you don't just leave. But the point is this. Even with this veiled threat, it didn't hinder his commitment. Look at verse 32. It says, and Jesus said to them, go tell that fox. Not saying that he's a handsome guy or something, okay? He means fox as in cunning, conniving, and destructive. You go tell that fox, Herod. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Now, Jesus is, is doing, is using what we call hyperbole, which is he's exaggerating for effect. Because we know that there were prophets of God who died outside of Jerusalem. He's not saying that it can't happen. What he's kind of saying to these Pharisees is, I recognize your veiled threat, 
uh, when you're saying, I'm warning you against Herod. But here's the truth. I'm going to finish God's plan. This is the idea from this day, tomorrow, and the third day. I'm going to finish God's plan for me. I'm going to Jerusalem, and it's not Herod who's going to kill me. It's you guys. He recognizes you're the, you're the bigger threat. But even that doesn't keep him from his commitment. I, w- I want this to sink in for a minute. Because if we're really honest, we're much more rebellious than we want to own up to. If we're really honest. We will do what makes us, we, we will do enough to make sure other people around us don't see us as rebels. But then what we will do is when no one else is looking, we'll do the rebellious stuff. Or in our heart, we'll do the rebellious stuff. Do you guys know what, we, what I mean by someone being passive-aggressive? Uh, passive-aggressive, it's just a kind of a psychological term. It just basically means when someone's acting like they're, they're kind of compliant, but actually they're, they're pushing against what, they really, what you really want to do. They're finding nice ways to come against you, basically. Uh, we, we always tease uh, my wife, Sarah, who's the sweetest in the world about being passive-aggressive. It's kind of a little joke. But the truth is, this is kind of how we are to God. We, we can push him away. We can push him away. But we'll do enough religious stuff. So from the outside, people go, well, no, they must be real believers. This is what the Pharisees did. This is what the religious leaders did. This is what many of the Jews did in pushing Jesus away. And what's amazing to me is in that state, Jesus presses towards what it would take to save them. That's grace. That's amazing grace. That he would press towards us, religious sinners, to bring us to himself. Now, as he confronts them about this, he says in verse 34, this lament. And we see this in other gospels connected to... um, connected to sections of scripture like we'll see later on in, in, in uh, Luke 21 that have to do with the last days. But here Luke includes it here for a really imp- important reason. He, here's what Jesus says. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those that are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you We're not willing. Think about this for a second. Listen to this. Please don't miss this bit, okay? When Jesus is crying out, Jerusalem, 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 the city becomes uh, an image of Israel's rebellion against God. And, And he is saying to them, listen, in the midst of this rebellion, he's saying, how much I long to gather you together. You know, this image that he gives, this image of a, of a hen gathering its chicks, doesn't mean, doesn't mean that Jesus is a chicken, obviously. Here's what it means. It's this idea that what a, a mother hen will do with its chicks is when it, it perceives that there's a bird of prey uh, flying above it, it will, it will put its wings out and all the chicks will come and hide under the wings. And the idea there is if the bird of prey attacks, it'll attack the hen and the chicks will be able to run to safety. And so he's, he's given this picture of, I want to protect you. I want to bring you near. Don't you see this is what I'm wanting to do? It's, it, I love this too because this picture of kind of almost like a motherly love, this motherly protection of a hen. And yet we also know that our God is a God of fatherly love. 
There's a fatherly love that the Father has for the Son that we've been invited into, and there's a motherly love that is expressed by them both that we're brought into, the Holy Spirit brings us into when we come to faith, when we learn to abide under the shadow of His wings. I love this because it's, it's ours for the taking if we are willing this is what Jesus is saying. Man, I really want this for you guys. You who rebel against me, you who push me away, you who give me veiled threats, I want this for you if you are willing. And then he goes on to talk about the consequences of not being willing. He says in verse 35, Behold, your house is forsaken. Now, this is a reference to the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Depending on when you think the Gospel of Luke was written, this could be a reference back, or if it was written before, a prophetic word forward. We know other Gospels talked about the fall of Jerusalem before the fall of Jerusalem, so either way, it's fine. But the point is, he's saying this is what's going to happen. Jerusalem, the place where you thought uh, your faith should be, we believe in the temple. We believe in the sacrifices, things that God did approve. Don't get me wrong, things that God did say, yes, this is what I want. But we believe in that rather than we believe in the God who dwells in the temple. We believe in the God who wants to forgive us, and that's why he, he demands the sacrifices. Jerusalem would be destroyed as a consequence of their rejection. Then he says this, which is mind-blowing. I want you to think about this. This is a rebellious people that he's just saying, look, if you were willing, I would have protected you. But they're obviously not willing, so there's going to be judgment on Jerusalem, right? But what else does he say at the very end of this verse? And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I want you to think about this. He, he, Jesus doesn't say, you won't see me again until you say, Oh, God, we hate you. Or, oh, Jesus, we should have believed. There's no sort of regret or grief in what they will say when they see him next. It is blessed are you that comes in the name of the Lord. There's a hint of restoration. Think about this for a second. The group of people that were most, in a sense, overt in their rejection and rebellion against Christ, he's saying, even you, even from your descendants, there's going to be a remnant that I'm going to bring back. Now remember, one of the, th the reasons that Luke is writing his gospel to this guy, Theophilus, is to answer this question. If Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, how come not all the Jews believed in him? And so all the record of this conflict in the gospel of Luke is to kind of answer that question. They didn't believe him because they had their own ideas. They didn't believe in him because this was, as we're going to see later, all part of God's plan. And the Apostle Paul, who was a companion of Luke, who wrote this, deals with the same question in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. In fact, I want to read to you some verses from Romans chapter 11. Listen to this. Paul writes, Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? 
Now, lest you be wise in your own sight, Paul writes, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. Now, remember, mystery in the New Testament is not something that we can't know. Like, oh, it's a mystery. I don't know. A mystery in the New Testament is something that we couldn't know until it was revealed to us by God. Until God reveals it to mankind, it's unknown until then. That's what the New Testament means by this word mystery. Okay? And Paul says, here's the mystery. Notice, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. Then, uh, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, what's he talking about? He's talking about a time when he is, when, when, when God is going to bring back a remnant of ethnic Israel and they're going to be saved. Now, different Christians have radically different ideas about how this is going to come to pass. It's interesting right now to see that only 40, 50, 60, 70 years ago, Israel was formed as a nation again, and uh, they, they controlled Jerusalem again since 1964. That might have significance. It might not. But the, what, what is really clear in Scripture is that he's going to bring back a group. Now, this is, why, why is this important? Because here's Jesus grieving over those who are going to reject God's kingdom and yet is still committed to save as many as he possibly can. Now, now I'm not saying this. Listen, I'm not saying this to under, undermine what I just said about Jesus' warnings. Jesus still is warning them. Jesus has kind of said to them, listen, your generation is going to experience the consequence of your rejection. You're going to see Jerusalem destroyed. It's going to be a horrible time. It's a very serious thing to, to turn away from Jesus, to reject his offer of forgiveness and salvation. But I, I do want us to see how radically compassionate Jesus is. Even in these strong words, he's so willing to save us, to make us right with God. The question is, are we willing? Now, now here's what we're seeing more and more clearly in the Gospel of Luke. And that is that Jesus has brought in and is bringing in God's kingdom. That God's kingdom has come in now because the king has come. And God's kingdom will come in its fullness when the king comes again. And I hope that you're seeing, even in these strong warnings, even in this conflict that Jesus, Jesus is having with those that are in opposition to him, that he wants these people in his kingdom, that he wants us in his kingdom. I hope we're seeing this. What I can't know for sure is, are you willing? Are you willing? Are you willing to trust Jesus? Let's sing this song about his grace. Let's let our hearts be prepared again. And let's be willing to trust him. Oh, bless you guys. Thanks for joining us. Um, thank you guys for coming online and watching this, whether it's live right now or later on. God bless you guys. Thanks for coming. We'll see you soon.